Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune, and ND Insider. This is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. It's been quite the week since our last podcast. It <laughs> seems like um, everything seemingly changes by the day, but um, the Big Twelve, the, or the Big Ten, and Pac-12 called off their fall seasons, um, but the ACC, SEC, and Big Twelve are forging ahead. Um, Notre Dame started practice on Wednesday, um, and uh, we're less than a month away from what is scheduled to be the season opener against Duke. Um, so that's gonna <laughs> we uh, find out new things every day. The latest news that just came across the the bulletin before we started the podcast is that. Um, Notre Dame defensive end Nana Osafa Mensa went un- underwent a knee surgery, a meniscus surgery, um, expected to miss a significant part of the season. Um, and so not a huge impact on the depth chart necessarily, but just a, another piece of latest news as, as Notre Dame starts practicing here, we're back to sort of reality of football and, and guys going down with, with injuries. And obviously Kevin Austin earlier um, this month announced he – was out with a, a foot injury, and now Nana Osafa Mensa is down with a, a knee injury. Um, but let's let's start big picture, Eric. Um, with only three of the Power Five conferences still committed to playing football this fall, um, at what point do you think this uh, maybe breaks down and the ACC maybe backs down? Do you think there's anything anything that you would see as a as a reason for Notre, Notre Dame and the ACC to, to shut things down? Well, not today, um, <laughs> and and it really goes by the day. And I think if uh, I think if one of the other conference power three now conferences shut down, I think you m- might see the ACC do that. Um, there would be, you know, right now you have seventy six, especially considering the quality of some of those teams, you could come up with a semblance of a national championship. Um, the thing is, we just don't know if, if teams are going to be able to get through some hiccups during the preseason and there's going to be hiccups because for the first time you have teams practicing all at the same time and you're going to have start having contact, uh, practices. So people are going to be touching each other in practice. 
then there's students being reintroduced onto campuses at some campuses. For example, Texas, interestingly, won't have many students on their campus. So it's going to be a little bit easier for them, even though they're in an area of extremely high infection. You know, I, I think most people, I think the safe thing is to predict that this isn't even going to make it to the starting line. I'm going to, I'm going to go that it's going to make it there. But, but again, we have days like yesterday where people freak out and probably justifiably so. In Notre Dame's own conference, three of their uh, opponents had hiccups yesterday, two of them self-induced. You know, one was Pittsburgh canceled practice because they had two players that were sick. When they tested them, they tested negative, so they're going to have practice today. But Syracuse didn't have practice because their players revolted against protocol that they thought was too slack uh, at their school. And Florida State players were vocal on social media about the testing protocol at Florida State. So, I mean, buckle your seatbelt. It's going to be a crazy month leading up to the starting line of September 12th for Notre Dame. But I, I'm not going to make any predictions whether they make it there or not. I'm done being a psychic. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going, we're probably going to see more of the, the athletes using their voice and speaking up if they see issues. Now they might not always be right. Maybe they're misinformed or maybe um, the questions that they have are actually actually have answers and they just don't understand them or they're just not getting them. And the transparency is what they're asking for more than an, an improvement in, in the protocol um, or, or questions about their safety. So um, I think it, there's a good balance there because I think someone has to, I mean, the players need to speak up for themselves. They're going to know as much about what's going on as, as anyone. Um, and certainly there's always going to be disgruntled players that maybe um, have different uh, motivations behind their speaking out rather than just um, a reflection of how, how the um, safety protocols are working. But um, I, I think that it's going to be um, pretty interesting to see how that continues to play out, what what triggers change, what what happens as, as a result of, of some of those things. And if if uh, these programs can sort of weather um, of getting through having issues with players, having guys test positive. Um, certainly Notre Dame has done pretty well with that through the summer, but obviously everything sort of changes when you start getting into practice here. Um, I thought it was interesting that Notre Dame's SWAT captains came out before they started practice this week and, and before um, I think the Big Ten and Pac-12 news officially came out um, that their seasons were canceled, that Notre Dame SWAT captain said they want to play football and they were – they believe that they're safe here at Notre Dame. Um, they believe that uh, it's it's better for the mental and physical health of the players to play this fall, um, and that um, they are set and they they believe others should be committed to playing football. And I think they did have the caveat there. They don't know how everything's working at other schools. They didn't want to speak for the situations of whether or not every school is handling it as well as they believe Notre Dame is handling it. Um, but I, I, they definitely – made their voice heard. Um, I don't know. Do you think that players like that, whether it's Trevor Lawrence at, at Clemson or, or the Notre Dame players, do you think that weighs into the mind of, of the ACC, the conference officials and the, the school presidents? Do, do you think that those guys have a voice in whether or not this 
kind of moves forward? In, in, in an indirect way, I do think. I think if there was strong sentiment from players not to play, it would have made it very easy for any of the leagues to say, okay, let's just pack it in at this point. Um, but you had the uh, the movement that Trevor Lawrence and some of the other players nationally started. You had Notre Dame players speaking out. I really didn't see too much dissent uh, on social media from, from any players. Now, you're seeing a little bit more of it now. Uh, I think Minnesota today, P.J. Fleck said, you know, every player he's talked to thinks the Big Ten made the right decision. I have a hard time believing that. I have a hard time believing there's any unanimity in any decision regarding yeah. COVID-19 at this point. Right. Uh, so, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I haven't done a lot of research on the 1918 season. Notre Dame did play through a pandemic, the Spanish flu that year. Um, they did end up having cancellations and postponements. They didn't play at all in October. Uh, they only got six games in out of nine scheduled. Uh, and they were, you know, there was one week where they were, they rescheduled on the fly late in the week and were able to play Saturday. So it's, but I, I doubt that the players had a voice then. They do now. And I think that's one thing that's really kind of cool to come out of this is that whenever we get back to kind of normal college football life, um, the players will be much more involved, I think, in a lot of areas of college football. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. The um, players feel empowered, and I think they should, and I think sometimes not. It, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, certainly, I'm not saying that there is dissent within Notre Dame's program, but it was signed by the captains. It wasn't necessarily signed by everyone on the team. Um, I, obviously, we haven't heard of any players opting out. Um, no one has expressed uh, publicly any concerns about how things are going, at least within the football team. Um, so I think um, it's something to keep an eye on, certainly. And um, I, I I do think that it's kind of this confluence of things that are happening. And I think some people are right to question of whether the Big, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, which uh, I don't think I, uh, coincidentally also had the, the players coming together to, using union terminology and talk and sort of expressing a want for that down the road. It now, certainly I think there's plenty of reasons in terms of safety to, to decide that this isn't the best that pursuing football this season isn't in the best interest of everyone. But uh, I think there has to be some that has to resonate at least a little bit in the minds of, of the, of the presidents and the athletic directors of, of okay, if, if we're going to commit to this, we, we really need to make sure things are, on the up and up and we don't have any issues if these, if these players are threatening to, to form a union of some sort of, of a player sort association. Um, and then I think that in essence, canceling the season maybe puts that on the back burner and, and, and maybe they could hope that goes away, but I don't know how much of that is real. Um, I don't know how much of it is really even from the player standpoint. Certainly there are individual players that spoke out about that. Um, but a handful of players, is far different than a majority of every single roster in each conference. So um, I think uh, there's a lot of room to go, to go there, but um, let, let's 
uh, focusing a little bit on Notre Dame football with Brian Kelly having his uh, press conference yesterday, uh, being Thursday. Um, what were your biggest takeaways from his uh, first media session of the preseason? Well, my first takeaway is that this is going to be a challenge covering the team based on the format of the Zoom conference meetings. And I'm not saying this to disparage anybody that was in charge of putting that together. I'm just letting fans know uh, that it's you feel like you're going kind of one eye blind at least on this. Uh, just because there's really, you never have the microphone, you can't follow up with questions, and maybe that process will kind of play out down the road a little bit. So it was all a press conference that was all over the place. Yeah. And, and, and the COVID questions needed to be asked. Um, there were very few foot, actual football questions asked. And then we had, you know, the leadership questions and the, you know, stuff that, you know, just and some of the stuff that it, Brian Kelly had already said on the Today Show or, you know, we've already done the social justice angle. But, uh, you know, everybody's got their own agenda. They have to write their stories. Having said that, in terms of too, having said that, in terms of just the team stuff itself, uh, what jumped out at me? Um, <laughs> uh, I will say, you know, the things I think fans want to know about is who among the newcomers might be able to help the team the most. And that's what I asked. And I, Tim O'Malley asked that about the grad transfers. And so I, I thought from that standpoint, the, the thing that my biggest takeaway was how well the cornerbacks were playing, the freshman cornerbacks. Um, Brian Kelly didn't mention them individually, but we're talking about guys like Clarence Lewis and, and there's, um, Caleb Offord and, and Ramon and, um, I'm probably missing somebody. That's, here. No, that's it. Because okay. Landon Barlson was the fourth and no, he's okay. okay. So, so, and, and then the other guys are kind of red shirt freshmen. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing about Kelly. You never when he says freshman, you don't necessarily know if he means yeah. freshman or red shirt freshman, even though. Right. The roster calls them sophomores. <laughs> so, right. Um, right. So, but, but I thought that was big. And I thought Chris Tyree being such, making such an impression because here was a guy, Notre Dame fans couldn't wait to get to campus because of his elite speed. And then as we got closer to him actually getting to campus, there was some reservations from the recruiting analyst community about, well, is he too small? Is he you know, a guy that's just going to be a niche player early in his career and maybe a real running back later. And Brian Kelly was like, hey, he's 100 – well, in a separate conversation, he had told me he's 190, not the 179 that he was listed. And, you know, great lower body strength. And they think he's going to be an important part of the rotation. So though, from a football-only standpoint, those were my tidbits. Yeah, I share some responsibility in the pumping of the brakes of the Chris Tyree thing. I've, I've been out up front of that of just not certain how much he will impact the running game this season, but certainly willing to to be um, pleasantly surprised. I think just being a little bit cautious on that. But and I, it, given the circumstances, I'm not going to be able to see it to believe it until it probably actually happens in a game because I don't know how much we're actually going to see 
of, of preseason camp uh, in terms of being there in person to watch them in action. But um, I doubt we'll see any. Another another person that was mentioned was Kevin Bauman, which yeah. I, that, that was certainly noteworthy. Um, I know I spoke with John McNulty um, this summer for our uh, ND Insider preview section, and he met when he talked when I asked him about Michael Mayer, he brought up Kevin Bauman too and said, "Listen, both those guys are going to be ready to play. It's not just it's not just a Michael Mayer thing because I know." Uh, we all know that there's big expectations for Michael Mayer, but to see that not only John McNulty, the tight ends coach, would mention them this summer, but also Brian Kelly would follow up um, in his opening press conference of the preseason and and show some love to Kevin Bauman, I think it's interesting. So um, a lot of talent in that tight, tight end room um, for John McNulty to work with in his first season at Notre Dame. And certainly uh, it seems like from everything that we've heard from Tommy Reese, he's not going to necessarily shy away from p- playing two tight ends and, not, not that uh, he will embrace the running game. So that, that could be very important for Notre Dame moving forward. Uh, the other thing from the Kelly press conference that kind of stood out to me was just sort of him detailing some of the things that are going on in practice that they can only have 50% of their locker room uh, filled. They can, they can only be at 50% of capacity. Um, he praised they're, they're, they're disinfecting the footballs. Everyone has their own water bottles. Um, and, that certainly led to, I think, a, um, a surprising consequence in the first practice of when uh, a lot of guys lost more water weight than, than normal. Um, and so they need to be more adamant about making sure that those guys get their, get their water during practice, though, even though they're responsible for water, <laughs> doing that themselves rather than having trainers walking around giving them, giving them water now. Um, but I, I think Kelly was both praising the team and the staff and everyone of how – hard they've worked, how, how detailed they've been and doing everything. But he was also willing to say, listen, this is, this is going to be hard. And how long can we, how long can we take this? How it's not, it's not going to be, it's not going to change in a week. We're not going to be able to go back to normal practice in a week. And so I think that is something that um, I think we have to monitor. And if the season plays out as, as scheduled, how does that affect teams in the long run? Do, Do teams, do teams maybe have lapses in, in their in their protocol because kids kids are just getting tired of it and they just feel like uh, they need a break or something like that and, and you, you lose focus on that and does that lead to more positive tests that leads to game cancellation so I think it's it's all everything relies on it on its on each other um, and I think uh, they certainly have accepted the challenge and they are putting forward as as much effort as they can in terms of trying to make sure that they. They, they meet those challenges in terms of being able to play this season. The, the one thing um, too, I want to mention, you know, every, every question Brian Kelly was asked, there seemed to be just a little bit of exasperation and not, not resignation, but just kind of, Oh, if you only knew kind of thing. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and there's one quote that really jumped out at me. He goes, I've been doing this for 30 years and I feel like a first year coach. Yeah, it seems like every day, and he said he was asked about what was the most surprising thing. And he he kind of laughed at first. He said, "Every day is a surprise. It, it, you don't really know what you're getting into on a day to day basis, and that's kind of the way you have to treat it." And, and given that this is a program that talks about the process so much, I think that that they have the framework and the the mindset to sort of handle that. Although when you, the process may change on a daily basis, it may make it a little bit more difficult. I. I you kind of hinted at it, talked about it a little bit, but I, I guess 
from my, my standpoint, it seems like it's going to be very hard to track and cover the actual development of this team throughout preseason uh, practices and before the first game. Um, I, I'm not sure how much we're going to learn. Um, I, I, I think probably every press conference that there is, there's going to be COVID-related questions and football questions. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious how, the, how you think that's going to play out. Um, because even, even when we would watch practice, we would be able to see things and then that would inform our opinions and be able – or inform the way we're asking questions because we would have information to ask about. And then if we're not able to see that, I think it makes it tougher for us to even know what to ask about, let alone um, know if what, what is being told to us is actually what's happening in practice. Uh, so how – I guess, what do you have a game plan for this? Do you, you feel like we're not going to know much about this team uh, as we move forward to the next few weeks? I do have a game plan, and I, I'm going to have to rely on people close to the program to help inform me, not so much with my writing, but to help me ask the right questions. Right. Um, I can give you a couple of instances where, had I not visually seen this happening, I would have missed missed it completely through fall camp. That's Julian Love and Josh Adams. I remember the first time I saw Josh Adams, because he was a three-star guy, he had been injured, and Dexter Williams was the guy that was getting Love in that class, and Dexter Williams turned out to be a heck of a back, but he wasn't ahead of Josh Adams at that point, and I didn't, I didn't expect the burst in Josh Adams' stride and, and so I wouldn't have asked the right questions about that had I not been able to see it. The other guy was Julian Love. You know, I, I, you, when you're out there and you're kind of watching, sometimes you forget the freshman numbers. And Julian was 27, and I went, who's 27? He's all over the place. <laughs> and, and it was Julian Love, and I thought, well, gosh, he's a three-star guy too. Is he really that good? He ends up being a consensus All-American. Um, so those are kind of the, the things. And, and the, you know, you would see them come do a tempo drill so you would know kind of roughly what the depth chart looks like. We're not right. going to be able to see that. Um, I, again, I think uh, doing follow-up, you know, follow-up questions or getting really specific with the line of questioning is, is going to be difficult. The other thing that's going to be difficult is with player interviews, you know, I think that people that do this well are able to build trust with the players just from you researching them when you're interviewing them, you know, instead of saying, now, did you play any other sports in high school? If you say, <laughs> I heard you were a great lacrosse player, it makes them feel more comfortable if you've done your homework when you're talking to them. You're not going to have those kind of relationships with, you know, 8,000 other people on a Zoom call with you. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to make everything a little bit different for us, just like it's making everything different for the Notre Dame. Right. And we have to adjust. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying we need to we need to adjust. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think I think it's it's worth mentioning just because I think when fans ask us questions, we're going to be. I think we might not have as clear of answers as we normally would. Um, and I think those answers that we may get, I think we may learn them more slowly than, than we would in the past. I think sometimes you can kind of see things right away and start learning about things quicker when you have your own perspective to rely on. Whereas uh, when you're sort of, everything is being filtered 
to you, um, it, it's just going to take a little bit longer to get that information. Um, I, I, I know like Notre Dame released photos and, and some B-roll video of, of practice of the first practice. And I'm here sitting there pausing it to see who's in the background to see if I can figure out who's all practicing just to see if I can figure out who may be quarantined or, um, because Notre Dame had nine players at the start of camp quarantine, uh, two of those for, from test testing positive to COVID. Um, so <laughs> it's just, a, it's just a very strange, uh, strange, uh, outlook on, on everything going on. I think it does make, uh, not to get a shameless plug in here, but it does make our season preview, um, last a little, a little bit longer. There isn't necessarily as much information that could be outdated in that. Um, and certainly if anyone missed that, it's, it's available online for ND Insider subscribers at ndinsider.com forward slash 2020 preview. Um, and if you'd like to buy a print copy, you can visit ndinsider.com forward slash buy the mag. Um, I know I brought a, brought a handful of those over to, to Eric so he can uh, distribute some. Uh, but they, they look pretty pretty dang good, the, the print product. Or sell them on eBay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there was – there was there was one up for sale already on eBay at a higher higher price than you could buy it directly from us. Yeah, so I, you know I really enjoyed the process of putting that together because I got to talk to some assistant coaches. I got to talk to Clark Lee, and I learned a lot about the defense and the personnel through that. And then Mike Mickens. I don't know that anybody else has done a in, done an interview with Mike Mickens. I was fortunate enough that Notre Dame granted that. And really to kind of, I guess maybe I shouldn't be surprised that the freshman cornerbacks are impressing Brian Kelly because Mike Mickens as a player was like that. He was a two-star recruit who started as a freshman at Cincinnati. He's had a history of being able to get guys to play early in, in, in the article, uh, which you can find in the preview you get inside his head in terms of his mindset and how he does that. It's very intentional in how he gets freshmen and sophomores to play at a high level early. And, and, and again, his own experience in that is one of the keys to doing that. So I, I found himself, I found him very fascinating. I also, for the story, talked to Marcus Freeman, who was a former Ohio State linebacker, but he's the defensive coordinator at UC, almost came to Notre Dame. Um, and uh, just some of his, his insights into what make Mike Micken so good at a very critical position for the Irish. Another thing you did for our ND Insider preview section was uh, you named your all 2000s Notre Dame football team, um, which may, may have kind of got lost in the shuffle as I think we released it online Monday when all the yeah. happening with, with the, the conferences. But um, it was also in the print section. Um, I, I was going to run through – I'll run through uh, who you picked as the starters for those for the, that team um, since people may have not seen it, and then we'll, we can discuss it a little bit. You had quarterback Brady Quinn, of course, running back Julius Jones, three wide receivers Will Fuller, Jeff Samarja, and Golden Tate, tight end Tyler Eifert, offensive tackle Mike McGlinchey, offensive guard Quentin Nelson, center Jeff Fain, offensive guard Zach Martin, and offensive tackle Ronnie Stanley. And then defensively, you had defensive end Stephon Tuitt, Defensive tackle Jerry Tillery, nose guard Lewis Nix, defensive end Justin Tuck, linebacker Jalen Smith, linebacker Manti Teo, linebacker Courtney Watson, cornerback Shane Walton, safety Harrison Smith, safety Tom Zibikowski, cornerback Julian Love, and then for special teams, 
I'm sure Brian Pulliam was excited about all the extra love he gave for the special teams. You included a kicker and punter naturally, Justin Yoon and Jeff Price. Punt returner, Joey Getherall. Kick returner, Vontez Duff. And for coverage, you included Mike Anello. So you gave a little extra love to the special teams guys there. Um, I'm curious. I think we sort of talked about doing this for a while. And one of your takeaways, it seems like it may have been easier than you thought it was going to be. But what was, what was maybe the hardest decision that you faced uh, going through this list? It, overall, it was easier. I mean, it didn't take me that long because I've covered all these guys. And then when I was able to kind of back it up with stats, I think it would have been harder to pick a second team. There's a lot more blur between maybe a second and a third and fourth choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the first team, the most difficult decisions for me, wide receiver to leave the all-time career leader in a lot of receiving categories, Michael Floyd off was very difficult, uh, but he was never an All-American. Will Fuller, Jeff Smarja, Golden Tate were. In fact, Golden won the uh, Boletnikoff Award. Jeff Smarja was a two-time All-American. You know, they were all – well, I mean, Fuller and was a first-round draft choice, and Golden Tate was a second. Jeff Smarja probably would have been in that range. Instead, he played baseball. Um had had I not kind of fudged a little bit, I made Zach Martin a guard. Right. Um, if if I couldn't have done that, which is his pro position, so I felt good about that. If I had to choose between Mike McGlinchey, Ronnie Stanley, and Zach Martin, I would have probably had to kick McGlinchey off, okay. which is really difficult. Right. Um, and then on defense, the only one that I really kind of struggled, I thought they were pretty clear cut, was – Lewis Nix at nose guard. It really came down to a brilliant 2012 season for Lewis Nix against four pretty consistent years for Ian Williams. Um, And so I ended up going with Lewis because, again, that season of 2012 doesn't happen if Lewis doesn't play at the high level uh, that he did that year. Yeah, I think when you put together a list like this, it's hard to figure out, okay, Am I, am I picking the player that was the best at his best or am I picking the player that had the best career? And I'll certainly, obviously that, that would, it would be hard to leave Michael Floyd off the list just because of all the records. He had a better career than Tate. Right. Tate had the peak. Right. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's tough to decide. I think college football is, is interesting or I guess somewhat unique in terms of when you're talking about sports, because you have a specific window where a player can only do the things four years or five years, four seasons where he can, he can play. Um, Whereas like, obviously if you're talking about an NFL career, I think then maybe you're rewarding longevity because it can go beyond those four years and you have a a, a wider window and there's probably more variance in terms of guys that can sustain their success. But when you're talking about college guys, it's almost, I think it makes sense to sort of see, talk about who maybe, uh, was the best for the uh, even if it was just a season, um, whereas you're talking about a guy's over 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 a career. Um, I, but I thought you did a pretty good job. I don't know that I would have had many different arguments. Um, who, if you couldn't have put Zach Martin at guard, who would have been your guard? I think it would have been Chris Watt. You know, he was a pretty high round draft choice, really consistent player. You know, certainly Notre Dame has been stronger at tackle than they were at guards, and. And there's a lot of guys that were pretty good guys that were drafted maybe in the middle to lower rounds like Sean Mahan and people like that. So once you get past 
Chris Watt, boy, there's a real blur of of guards that were pretty comparable. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one is from Kevin Calabria at Kevin Calabria one where any of the three medical dismissals, and, and he's referring to grad transfer running back Trevor Spates, wide receiver Isaiah Robertson, and offensive lineman Cole Mabry, were any of those guys in the two deeps, and can they become eligible next season? You know, Cole could have worked himself into a backup role if he was, was able to play at a high level. It's just that he's been injured for a while, and so it's been a while since he was considered a guy that could contend for that. You know, Trevor Spates certainly wasn't in the two deeps, but they wouldn't have brought him on if they didn't think he couldn't make some kind of impact in their rotation, but at the time, not in the two deeps. And then uh, Isaiah Robertson, his career kind of was backwards. He played a lot as a freshman, a little bit as a sophomore, not at all as a junior. Uh, so he was not in the four deeps. Yeah, and I – for all intents and purposes, they're, they're no, they won't be eligible next season. Uh, they may be able to transfer and appeal to play and find another doctor that say that they're, they, right. they're, it's safe for them to play. Um, Michael Deeb, who I wrote about this, this, this summer, was a guy who was medically disqualified at Notre Dame and graduated here and then ended up playing baseball at Bethune-Cookman. Um, so there is some wiggle room there in terms of becoming able to play again. I don't, I don't know if it's – harder if you're arguing in terms of playing football again rather as where Michael was was switching to play baseball obviously a less of a contact sport when he had an elbow injury um so I think uh certainly sad for those guys this is the worst year to have had to go through the realization that your football career at Notre Dame was over um with everything else going on and those guys going through work I know like I think late July Cole Mabry was an image that the Notre Dame football account tweeted out him working in the summer workouts. So it's not like these guys hadn't been doing anything lately. Um, they've been trying to, to prepare for this season and just um, for various reasons with various injuries, um, just weren't able to, to be in a position to, to, to play football at Notre Dame. Next question is from Josh Melton at Joshua Melton. Is there any insight on the Spates injury? Do you know if they had an inkling if he was not 100% when they accepted the transfer? The whole thing seems really weird to me. You know, I, I don't have any insight into the injury. I wanted to ask about that yesterday, and that was not going to happen. I, I got one question, which is one question more than a lot of people on our beat got. Um, so I, I'll do a little poking around on that eventually. When he came to Notre Dame, I thought that they had done their homework in terms of feeling like he was healthy at the time that he enrolled or they would not have pursued that. But again, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, grad transfers are available because they've been injured at some point. So you're a lot of times going to take risk. Uh, Avery Sebastian was a guy that, you know, a safety that played at Notre Dame actually had six, six years of college but really didn't contribute in the two years he was here at Notre Dame. So, again, there's, there's always risk with 
most of these grad transfers because the reason they're they're available is because of an injury at some point or more. Yeah, the, I, the Spades thing has been, at least from my perspective, pretty confusing throughout. I, I It didn't t- make a ton of sense that they would take a chance on that kind of guy, in my opinion. Obviously, it brought some experience to that running back group, but they, they weren't short on numbers at running back, um, and, and he had had the injury history. And even like trying to figure out what, what was the injury that held him out for the majority of last season was hard to track down. There wasn't much reporting on it from Stanford's end. I've seen knee injuries mentioned. I've seen concussion-related issues yeah. um, And I'm not sure which of those potentially ended his career. What, what, if it was a, a reoccurrence of one of those injuries or if it was something else, I, I, don't, I don't have an answer at this point yet. Hopefully we find out some more information about that because I think it's a very strange situation that a guy would come into grad transfer and before even end up ending up playing here is declared uh, uh, or uh, as a medical disqualification. You know, one guy that among Notre Dame's four grad transfers that had no injury history was Isaiah Pryor. And he's a rare guy that just wanted to play more and, and then graduated early from Ohio State. So right. he's got two years. Next question is from NDF underscore Discord. Do we have any insight as to what exactly ND's protocols are involving quarantine players who have come into contact with other players who have tested positive? Interested in knowing what the contact threshold is after hearing that seven players were removed from team activities after two others had tested positive. Hard to imagine that those two players come into close quarters with only seven other players. Well, I think until very recently, they've still tried to keep smaller groups in practice. Uh, once they put the full pads on, they're going to have some 11 on 11 periods. And we have not gotten definition from Notre Dame. I know Tyler's working on that. That was one of the things Tyler and I both asked yesterday that weren't answered. Um, and so that's kind of a, to be determined, but, but in, even in terms of, okay, kind of what the threshold is. I don't know that anybody knows that at this point. I think <laughs> I, I know when um, I had a chance to talk to the team physician, Dr. Mark Leesler, very early in this process, before the players even came back, you know, we were talking about what's, what's the threshold of even just having workouts, guys getting sick, when do you shut it down? And he didn't have a hard and fast number. It's, it's, there's a lot of art to this and there's a lot of science to this. And since there's no context or precedent, you just kind of have to go by feel. And and so I don't know that somebody's going to say, well, if it's 13, then we're not playing. Right. Yeah. I think it's without knowing who the players are, it's, it's it, I, I think, there's ways you can like say if it was a specialist, um, he's not going to have the contact with that many people. Whether it's the long snapper or the field goal kicker or the the punter, they th- those guys interact with each other. But beyond that, they don't necessarily interact with a lot of the, the other the other members of the team. So there could be instances where if someone someone like that could um, test positive, that the contract tracing would be somewhat limited. There's also guys that that are, that could be walk-ons that have maybe been at less activities in the past um, than others that um, maybe that limits their contact tracing. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what that's going to look like with them 
in full team practices now, if there's any intentional design to how position groups are practicing um, and to, to sort of limit the, the effect of potential contact tracing. Um, and if uh, you have to maybe make sure that starters are separated from each other or, or reserves are going in at different times, I think it's, a, it's probably one of those many things that Brian Kelly is trying to figure out um, as, as things, things progress here. But at, at a certain point, I think you have to just – hope and and do your best to keep guys from testing pot keep the keep the virus off away from your team and then you don't necessarily have to worry about how many people it infects when it's on the team but it's it's you're fighting a, a tough battle brian kelly said you're, we're not going to have no positive tests we, we've they've been lucky to and not necessarily lucky but they've earned um the ability to only have had four players test positive so far but um and they've been able to manage that but um, there's no guarantees that they can keep those those numbers low. Uh, similar question from Nick Planton with two players testing positive and seven in contact trace quarantine. What is the threshold for canceling a game in the season? Yeah, I, I don't think that we know that. We'll we'll if we get to the starting line, I think we'll have a feel for it. One of the reasons, um, one of the reasons the ACC built in those two bye weeks was to give you some flexibility in case you had a situation like that. You could possibly make up the game later in the season, either with that ACC team or another ACC team that had a common bye with with you. Um, but it's it's really difficult to figure out. But when we were talking about Nana Asafa Mensa. This was a guy that we didn't expect to play a very big role. But let's say you lose Adeogandeji and now Justin Adam Malola is your starter, then Nana Osafa Mensa would have been kind of an important player in that depth chart. I think right now, for example, you know, maybe this opens the door for Riley Mills, a true freshman, to play a little defense, big defensive end instead of inside, where they have a little bit more depth right now. But you can see you're going to have to flex the depth chart uh, if you do have positives. So those guys that are maybe third string that you're not, you know, thinking are going to be big contributors may have to step up and play. Yeah. I would tend to think that teams, if say like you lose a few right wide receivers and you're stuck playing backup wide receivers, that that's not going to force a cancellation of a game. At least that was my guess. But if you're losing, Guys, you're where you're at a point where you're only playing walk-ons, or maybe you have to change guys' positions just to have enough players to play. I think that's probably the threshold, and I don't know that it's a it's a number of any sort. I think it, um, and I, I'm I, I'm curious. Does the ACC have some sort of committee to like say like, hey, we are Notre Dame. We we don't have this many players because of either COVID testing or contact tracing. Can we reschedule this game? And then does someone like weigh in? Well, no, you have enough wide receivers, so you can do this. Or you have enough yeah. defensive tackles. I, I, I'm kind of uh, interested to see how that plays out and what what the process is there. Um, or, and if if one team agrees to it, does the other team say no? We want to play. And does that have any any way any say in how things are handled? It's going to be a, <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride for sure. Next question is from Kyle O'Shea. Will they keep Brendan Clark two miles away from Ian Book at all times to po- prevent possibly losing all three quarterbacks at the same time to COVID? Again, that's a question we haven't had a chance to ask. 
my sense is that they're probably keep them kind of physically distanced in practice, but they're still going to be in the same general area of the field. Um, you know, I, I think that if you did lose those two, at least you have Drew Pine. And even if you lost all three of them, let's say the other two had to be quarantined, you do have some guys on the roster that could play quarterback. Um, it, not ideal, but Avery Davis could certainly move back there. Kendall Abdul-Rahman uh, could be a guy that could play some quarterback and played in high school. I think you may have to improvise with that, but this is, I mean, these, my head starts to kind of hurt when I think that deep of speculation. And I understand why there's curiosity about it. It's just, you know, I've been doing, you know, I've been writing sports longer than Brian Kelly's been coaching football <laughs> and, and nothing has come up like this before. So uh, it's, it's kind of a combination of logic, intuition, and, you know, kind of blindly throwing darts at a dartboard. <laughs> yeah, and, and maybe everyone's going to need to learn the back of or the walk-on quarterback saying J.D. Carney, Cole Capen, and uh, a freshman from New Prairie High School, local high school, Chase Ketterer. So um, yeah. they have uh, walk-on options as well. I don't know how well prepared the, any of those guys are necessarily, but um, it, it's it'd be interesting. I, I did that was something I was looking at in the the pictures and footage that were released. It did seem like the quarterbacks weren't necessarily like huddled up next to each other as they're waiting their turn behind whoever is, is in throwing. And that makes sense to keep some distance between them um, as they're kind of standing around. I don't know if Tommy Reese is meeting with them. Uh, to me, it would almost make sense to just do zoom meetings with your, with yeah. your groups rather than get every, get everyone in a meeting. I don't know if they're doing that throughout the team or not. It's, it, it seems like I, that it would make the most sense to just do it all zoom for every position. I don't know why, um, if you have the technology to not do that at this point, I certainly you lose some of the camaraderie and, and you uh, lose a lot of camaraderie. You think about Mike Elston and his group defensive end group having pool parties over at his house and they did a panic room together. Right. And he said yeah. That was kind of a turning point for them. in in one of the seasons, I think it was, the 28, nobody's doing a panic room. Those things are not going to be real popular right now. <laughs> There's plenty of panic. There's no need to create a panic room. Um, next question is from DOC at, at DO Carroll one over under number of games played before a pause or cancellation of the season. And I think what he was suggesting was one half. So do you think we get through the Duke game without a pause in the season? I think I am kind of voting with my heart on this because I think if, if we get to the starting line and play a game, whatever happens from that point on will be historic. You know, people will be reading that story decades from now <laughs> uh, because the odds were so stacked not to get to that point. And, and if Notre Dame and Duke are able to play that weekend, I, I can't imagine. It's just, I, I think for one thing, if I'm in the stadium, which I hope I would be allowed to do, and I think I would be, I'll weep, you know, um, <laughs> because that's how much I'm, I miss college football and how much I was convinced at some points that this wasn't going to happen. So I'm going to go over, but I'm voting for my heart. <laughs> well, if, if I'm allowed to be there with you, Eric, I'll make sure I'll bring some Kleenex for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, because that I those droplets, I don't know if they're you can infect people with your droplets. So. <laughs> um yeah, I I I think I I'll do I'm going the same way. I I've I'll still hold out hope. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel terribly confident in anything right now, but yeah. um, uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I think. Uh, uh, Boy, did we sweat between. I don't know if people realize yeah. there was a six day gap between when we printed our special section and when it came out. <laughs> and there was a point where the Western Michigan was added, which <laughs> made our schedule kind of out of date. And then it went away. So our schedule was perfect. Yeah, that was that was that was a long six days. Thankfully, all the all the other news sort of came the next week after that. But um, yeah, even the Kevin Austin injury announcement came during that that in between time of when we printed it and when it actually appeared in publication. So it was a, a long six days. Uh, next question from Tyler Wenzel at the Real T Wenzel: Who will replace Western Michigan on the schedule? Uh, it won't necessarily be replaced. I think I will have an answer early next week. Um, but I know who it won't be. It won't be another power five team. It'll be um, a group of five teams. So it's either somebody from the AAC, somebody from the Sun Belt, or somebody from the um, Conference USA. And, and they all are looking, or a lot of those teams are looking to add non-conference games. So um, the thing that you really have to be careful about, and it almost screams, you know, if Navy didn't have a game that week, it would scream reconsidering Navy, but trying to get them to play at home. But again, that was all kind of a big web. And that you want to make sure that that school has the same standards that you do in terms of protocol. And I think that's going to take some vetting. Yeah, and the ACC has said that the schools have to follow the same protocol that they've set in their own conference. So, my I, I would bet that it, they won't be replaced. I'm not I'm not sure of the upside. You know, it's it's extra TV money in theory, and if they were to let fans into the stadium, potential revenue there. But I have my doubts of whether or not that's going to happen. Um, and the the TV money seems less important because Notre Dame's sharing its NBC money with the conference anyways. So it's, it's not necessarily all money that would be going to them. It's money they would share. And I think Notre Dame's making out, going to make out well with, with the current uh, TV uh, situation with, with them getting a share of the ACC money now. Um, so I think, and, and the other reason to add a game would be to potentially improve your schedule or your, whatever your, um, I guess your argument would be forever if there is a college football playoff. And I don't know that there's teams out there that, that are going to move the needle in terms of you um, having that played that team or having that game on your schedule. I think there's going to be plenty of teams that don't play more than 10 games. So I don't know that it's going to hurt Notre Dame to not have an 11. So I'm not sure I see a, a, a winning argument for, for trying to add another team to, to the mix. Next question is from Frank Sarah at Frank Sarah three. Do you see any players opting out? When I had a chance to talk to Jack Swarbrick recently, that Notre Dame's athletic director, he, he had not heard no players had come to Brian Kelly or him even considering it at that point. Um, but that doesn't mean somebody couldn't have changed their mind and say, boy, this is getting scarier with the students back. I'm not comfortable. Um, and they certainly want to make, 
sure that players feel comfortable coming to them with their concerns and also if they want to opt out. So I don't think there's anybody kind of on that radar right now, but, you know, again, situations can change and they might, you know, there might be somebody, especially if they're not playing that says, you know, is it really worth the risk going to practice and everything every day and not having a chance to see the field? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't seem like there's anyone in the, under the current, situation that is is ready to opt out certainly i think a lot of those things could change maybe they see um maybe maybe if testing numbers get higher they decide i'm getting out of here i don't want to, i don't want any part of this I'm, I'm a little nervous about what's going on um and then certainly if the season gets moved to spring that's a completely different discussion i think there could be guys that potentially would would opt out um and speaking I, of spring I, i'm still skeptical that that's going to happen yeah, I, I don't totally understand what how it would work. I think Ryan Day was of Ohio State was mentioning, well, let's start right away in January. But even I mean, even then, whenever the season the the issue is whenever you start your or end your spring season and whenever you start your fall season is going to be so much shorter than the, the amount of time that it normally is between an actual season that ends in December or the beginning of January and starts in, in September. And now obviously the guys, teams play spring football, but it's just not the same thing um, competing on, on Saturdays um, and, and the physical um, drain on a body in, in an actual season is so much different than the physical toll that's taken in spring practice when most of the time you're not even tackling full go and you're, and you're playing against teammates. So you're just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's completely different. So I, I think people that are sort of, relating it to spring football practice. I don't know that they have the proper perspective there. Um, and it's just, I, I, if you're playing the spring, what, what is the point? I, my question is, be, so even my question is, even in the fall, if they're not playing for a championship, what's the point? Like, it, what, are, what are we playing for? Are we just playing to make, because then you're just playing to make money, right? And you're playing, right. you're playing to make money and having the kids order. have an opportunity to play. And certainly the kids, yeah. if you give the kids, kids the option and they're opting to play, then maybe it's not that bad. But um, so I think if a spring season would work, I think it would have to be everyone playing in the spring and having some sort of championship that would occur in the spring rather than it being split like the way it is now. So I, I don't know. I, I remain super skeptical of the spring situation as well. And I, I don't know if you would – because at some point you're going to affect the 2021 season in, in, in addition to that if you, if, you, if you do the spring in some way. and especially if some teams play this fall and, and, or some conferences play this fall and then some conferences play in the spring, why, the, why would the conferences that played in the fall want to delay their 2021 season to accommodate the teams that played in the spring? So it's just a whole mess and just seems like something that people – I think I saw someone say this on Twitter and I don't remember who said it exactly, but it seems like the people that are saying that spring football can happen are, are saying that because I think that's what you want to hear and they want you to have hope that there's going to be yeah. a football still, even though the, the reality of it probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. I think the one thing on the COVID front that we have a pretty good feeling that's going to be different is um, testing, that there will be likely a saliva test that's cheaper and reliable and that you can turn around and that's $10 a pop instead of $100 a pop. So especially teams – that are in the FCS or group of five teams, it's going to be easier for them to follow protocols, but that doesn't make 
everything nice with the virus. We, we hope that there's better therapeutics. We hope there's a vaccine. But, you know, again, how quickly can you get the vaccine out? And I doubt that football players are going to be at the front of that line. I think you're going to have the people that are in the high risk groups at, at the front of the line when the vaccines start to come out, if, if they do stay on the timeline, the aggressive timeline that they're on. Yeah, the spring thing just seems to be the latest in pushing things off to decide in the future. And as we saw with the Big Ten and the Pac-12, that didn't work. You can't just keep pushing things off and hoping things get better because it just it's not going to necessarily play out that way. The, you know, Tyler, I mean, I, I, I've tried to stay apolitical on this because basically I am an apolitical person. I don't, I don't like politics and whatever, but you know, the, the thing that I've kind of, that's frustrated me and that um, I think for, is makes it very difficult to get through this is that people's behavior don't, isn't necessarily going to change in the future. They're not going to necessarily wake up and say, you know what, I can go into the grocery store with a piece of cloth on my face for 15 minutes. You know, the people that are against that, I see, unless they're going to be fine for it, are going to dig their heels in. And there's a lot of people that just think this is a hoax. And and I don't know that there's going to be a lot of movement from one side to the other. And, and that's always going to make this a challenge. Yeah, I think the only way that changes is people having more personal accounts with that and being able to relate to it more and seeing what it happens to people around them. And obviously that is a pretty depressing thought to be, to, to think that that's what's required for people to take some of these uh, things seriously. But um, let's move on and talk some more football because okay. that stuff gets me pretty fired up. Uh, the next question is from Adam Luce at ACO Luce. Predicted too deep at wide receiver, running back, both defensive end spots and both linebacker spots. Okay, so let's start with the wide receivers. And let's assume that we're going to throw Kevin Austin in here because he – probably would be back in October. So he'd miss a couple of games. So I'm going to include him and then I'll tell you what I think it looks like without him. Uh, I think Braden Lindsay and Ben Skoranek and Ben's not, you know, a guy that fits that wide side receiver, but I still think that's probably where, where they would put him if Austin's playing at the old Will Fuller position, which is, you know, the guy that's supposed to be the burner. I think, uh, Keys and Avery Davis would be the slot guys. And then Kevin Austin and uh, Javon McKinley at the boundary uh, position, which is Chase Claypool's position last year. Um, but I think if Austin's not playing, then Ben Skoranek probably moves over to the boundary, which is probably a more natural fit for him. And then you'd have, um, I think, Joe Wilkins and Xavier Watts may be competing for that second team spot behind Braden Lindsay. Um, do you want to do wide receivers first before we go to linebackers? Yeah, I think I'm pretty much in agreement there with you on the wide receivers. I, I think there's a chance that maybe Xavier, especially if Ben Skoranek, or while Ben Skoranek, easy for me to say, um, is playing while Kevin Austin is out, I, I do think he will be the starting boundary receiver with Austin out. That maybe – Someone like Xavier Watts can be the backup field by receiver. I'm pretty high on him. Um, so there's a chance for that. And certainly um, with Skoranek as the starting boundary, I would, that would make Javon McKinley the backup. And I think he would 
depending on I think Skoranek's going to move around the most. So probably be the one that plays the most position is my is my guess. And so that changes some of the things. But I think for the most part, we're we're in agreement there. And and Brian Kelly mentioned yesterday in the press conference that of all the wide receivers, they accumulate points in the off season for conditioning and things and so forth. He had the most points among the wide receivers edging Kevin Austin. And when you compare it to some other position groups, I mean, they were way ahead. Um, you know, I mean, I was, I don't know if it's as easy for a defensive back to accumulate points, but they were like 500 points ahead of Kyle Hamilton, which I, I questioned Brian Kelly's math. Yeah. I, w- I wasn't sure if he, he meant like cumulative. So like he was including the spring and the summer for some of those guys. And then some of them, he was just talking about the summer. Yeah. It was, it was confusing and I had no idea what the numbers necessarily meant. He did give us like, comparative you compared yeah. some of the guys to other players but Chris Tyree had a bunch it didn't it, it I, I don't I'm not aware of this uh, number scale and, and it wasn't on the uh starving to whatever the scale is that Matt Bayless uses in terms to sort of categorize how hard guys are working and starving is a good thing that means you're 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 hungry to uh to get more work and I, I don't know what the that's like the high end I'm not sure I don't remember what the low end is it like content or something like that or what it was satisfied Satisfied. Okay. Similar. Yeah. 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 They, they have a whiteboard and they have everybody's name on it. And not only are you in one of the three categories that ranges from starving to satisfied, they will rate you within each of those. So there, there's a pecking order from one to 85. I guess the walk-ons are in there too. So it's always interesting when you walk into that room, which won't happen, (laughs) but but it is always interesting to walk in that room and kind of see who's, who's up there. So we want to move to linebacker now. No no, running backs, running backs. Okay. I'm going to go with uh, Jafar Armstrong as the starter. I I think Sebo was the number two guy at the end of the year and probably would have started the spring that way. And I think, Boy, it's really difficult because their skill sets are also different. I think Kyron Williams is going to be an ascending player. But I will give Sebo the nod to begin the season. And if we get through the season, I think Chris Tyree is going to be number two at some point. Yeah, I think I have the least. He had 1,000 points. (laughs) I have have the least clear picture of what's going to happen at running back. Uh, I I still do believe strongly that Jafar Armstrong will be the lead running back and that he has a very high potential there. I, I'm a little bit of a SIBO skeptic, and I don't know I can necessarily yeah, point, I am too. point my finger to why. So maybe Jameer Smith can 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 do some something there as the number two guy. I, I do like Kyron Williams as well. I was a bit shocked that he did so little last year, um, which makes you wonder, like, that's kind of – I, like, I think that was a chip thing. Chip yeah, it's a different situation. Different coaches can, um, on staff, but um, I, I think uh, so. I, I'll go if I'm if I'm forced to pick one, two. I'll do Jafar Armstrong and Jimmy Smith. But I think obviously there's plenty of other guys that can that can change that up as the number two guy. Okay, and then for linebacker, I had the pleasure of talking to Clark Lee, and he did not give me any good <laughs> answers here. Uh, because there is really going to be a mass audition at that buck linebacker. But I would say, you know, obviously with Rover, it's going to be Jeremiah Wusukormo and Paul Mawala. And we know Drew White will be the starter at middle linebacker. And then it comes down to Bo Bauer, who's a pure middle linebacker, versus um, Simon, Shane Simon, who is one of the people competing for 
that buck linebacker. And I actually, I love Bo Bauer. I think 10 years ago, he's the starter. Um, but he, his coverage skills, unless they improve significantly, I don't think he's going to be in the two deeps. And then at the, uh, Buck linebacker. I mean, there's just a whole bunch of guys that are competing for that particular spot and, and some really good ones. I mean, Kaiser's in that mix now, Jack Kaiser, Maris Lufau. Um, I'm going to go with Jordan Jenmark Heath to start the season. I don't know that he's going to be able to hold on to that. And I'm going to go with Jack Lamb. I think Jack Lamb, a healthy Jack Lamb, is the best option there. Yeah, I think we're we're in agreement at the Mike and Rovers and then the Buck. I think it's, it's take your pick. We we know so little. We got to see so little of the spring, which was going to be so important for that position. Um, that and it can, I guess I don't know if how last season played out is maybe making me think. Okay, maybe there's something to Clark Lee and him sort of developing these older players where. I don't know that many people going into last season would have picked Drew White to be the guy that was going to emerge at Mike linebacker, but he did. And so maybe Jordan Jim Marquise can have a late career um, surge and, and, and pull out that buck linebacker spot. So I would pick him first like you did. And then I really like Maris Lufile too, so I'm going to put him as the number two. I'm just so uncertain about the, the health of Shane Simon and um, Jack Lamb. I, I think I need to see them kind of stay healthy for a prolonged amount of time before – I want to pencil them into to necessarily any spot on the depth chart. And then we also needed to hit on defensive ends as well. Okay, defensive end, I would say um, Ade Ogundeji and Justin Adam Alola. And at the other side, it will be Dalen Hayes. And then there's really a really good competition between Isaiah Foskey and Ovi Agofu. I would give the edge to Isaiah Foskey just because I think he's going to be incredible at some point. I don't know if it's going to be this year, but at some point we're going to be talking about him the way that we talked about some of the really good defensive ends during the Brian Kelly era. Yeah, I really like what Ovi can do, so I'm curious to see how that that plays out. So I think Isaiah Foskey probably has the better long-term potential um, than Ovi Agofu, but I, I think – Ovi has been really coming along here and, and transformed his body quite a bit at Notre Dame. And I think that's some special athleticism for a guy that used to be a linebacker that maybe Notre Dame can find a way to get him in the mix. But I think you're probably right that Foskey is the guy that makes more sense in terms of a higher potential at that backup defensive end spot. And certainly they need Dalen Hayes to stay healthy, which hasn't been a certainty um, in his career. Next question is from Keith at Soccer Guy 8801 who do you feel are the best recruiters on this coaching staff? And has Brian Kelly been more involved and active more than usual this cycle? It seems as though he was very much involved with Rocco Spindler. Right. In the, um, in the story that I did on Brian Kelly for the special section, uh, one of the things we did talk about was he becoming more involved. And when he made the declaration about wanting to have and, and pledging to have better recruiting classes, he did include, he did feel like a big key piece in that was him being involved more and at critical junctures with recruits earlier. And he was embracing that. And I think Rocco Spindler is certainly a case where we saw that be a factor. In terms of uh, assistant coaches recruiting, I'm going to make a lot of people mad. I think here 
And I, I think at some point the answer to this needs to be Tommy Reese um, needs to be in this group. I don't think that that's proven beyond quarterbacks at this point. We need to see him pull in the running backs and the wide receivers and the tight ends and the offensive linemen and be involved in those. But I'm going to say Mike Elston. He's proven. He, he's, he recognizes talent. He's able to get it on campus. He's able to develop it. And I'm going to say Jeff Quinn. Um, I think that Jeff has done a remarkable job. And I know that there were some big-time offensive line that, that slipped through the board, slipped off the board once COVID-19 hit. I think Jeff probably would even have a more touted class if that was possible. But my gosh, Blake Fisher and Rocco Spindler, there's not a lot of classes that have you know, two top 50 guys in them at, at offensive line. And then if I were going to throw another person in there, I'd say Terry Joseph's kind of underrated, but I mean, Lance Taylor could be on this list if he had gotten Will Shipley. Um, then you would have said, wow, two elite running backs and two classes in a row. They're not exactly apples to apples comparisons, but those are the guys I'm going to go with. Yeah, it's tough because a guy like Lance Taylor was able to do that with Chris Tyree in a position where Notre Dame has sort of been struggling to recruit those kinds of guys. Um, and then, but then he then he whiffed in the next cycle, um, and then they had to kind of settle for a guy like Logan Diggs um, because they kind of put all their eggs in the Will Shipley basket. So I don't know that I want to include him there yet. I just think Elst, Mike Elston and Jeff Quinn, they have a longer track record, and they, they are getting more guys of a, higher, of a high quality um, that I think you feel pretty confident on. And I think Quinn is certainly aided by being at Notre Dame. I think as long as you're not an idiot, you should be able to recruit offensive linemen at a pretty well, le- pretty good level here at Notre Dame. Um, now, certainly I think he's, he's, he's doing better. Than, he's not recruiting like the, what he's doing isn't, isn't a given. He's doing better than just what any, any Joe Schmo could do. But um, I think that that certainly aids him. Um, I think Mike Mickens has the potential to potentially get there. Uh, certainly too soon to say that, but he's done a lot of work with cornerbacks already. Um, so I think they have a talented staff. I don't know that there's a lot of glaring holes um, as, as a recruiting staff. Um, I think some people had questions about Delvon Alexander when he came to Notre Dame, but he's done a pretty good job with, with the receivers group. And I think Tommy Reese has, has helped in, in some of those receivers recruitments as well. So I think, um, and then Brian Pullian is kind of all over the place being that he's the special teams coach and the recruiting coordinator. Um, but I think he does a lot in terms of making things are going the right right direction. So I think they have a pretty good staff overall, but certainly room for improvement in terms of getting the, the top tier guys and, and, and trying to push them to the class where, or to the spot where they want to be in the top five. And Brian Kelly's not backing off of that yet. So they're going to continue to try to push for that. Next question is from Marie Biafor at Biafor underscore Marie. Now that California high school football will be played in the spring, should Tyler Buckner still enroll early if that is still possible, or should he play another season of high school to get more meaningful snaps snaps. What do you think the ND staff would advise? Well, I, what I would advise is to come to Notre Dame, get in school and start learning how to play college football. And part of what I would base that on if I were Tyler's father or, or somebody that he was consulting is we don't know for sure that there's going to be a spring football in California. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'd say go ahead and get on campus. And I think that's his, his aim. And I think he's a pretty advanced prospect. Um, and he certainly would get reps if Notre Dame was 
going through a traditional spring football, you know, practices. Um, and even then he'd be able to be around Matt Bayless. He'd be able to be in meetings with Tommy Reese. I just think it's better for him to be here. Was the second part of the question what what Notre Dame would have him do? Yeah, right. I would say they would also vote for that uh, because, again, you don't know what high school life is going to be like for him. And, again, he's at a new high school too. I, I saw that there was a, a high school quarterback from California that transferred to Georgia, a very highly touted kid, uh, is going to try to play high school football in Georgia. I would not recommend that either trying to transfer to another state at this point. Uh, so, because again, you don't know how those seasons are going to play out. You'd, you'd have no chemistry with your teammates. So I like, like the fact that he would enroll early at Notre Dame. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I just, if, if you're trying, if the point of, of him enrolling early is for him to be able to start next season as a freshman it just seems so crazy to me that he would he would do that after playing just one season of high school football or varsity football, playing as a playing as a junior. He was injured his entire sophomore season, so he's only had one season. Um, I agree that the uncertainty of the spring in California means that he could stay there and end up not playing football. But I, so I think that what I would advise is be able to graduate at the end of December to be able to come to Notre Dame in the spring, but. I just think if you have a chance to play football for another season, I think that would be more valuable long-term in his career than to come to Notre Dame and, and, and compete to be the next guy. I I don't know. It's, it's a tough one for me. I don't know that there's necessarily a wrong answer. Um, Of course your answer is (laughs) wrong, but it just, it just seems so like, so his, the, what it would be, the 15th start of his of his football career in high school and in college would be his first start at Notre Dame. I, I don't know the, the, that number's not right necessarily. I don't know how many games he's – We don't know that he's necessarily going to be the starter in 2021 either. I mean, it could be Brendan Clark or Drew Pine. Right, right. And I agree. I, I think it probably won't be. I, I just think it's, it's going to be so hard with everything that's going on um, for him to be potentially ready for next season with, everything, <laughs> with all these things going on. But um, – so that, that that's part of the reason I, I just don't know what's what's the hurry for him to get to Notre Dame unless he can't play football in the spring in California. Um, I think it, I think for his for his development, it's probably just as good to be playing actual games in high school than it would be to just be learning things at Notre Dame because he could do that. He could do he can learn about Notre Dame's offense from home. He doesn't have to be here to do that. They they proved that uh, this year. Um, so uh, next question related to quarterbacks, Irish fan 10, Irish fan 102. Uh, please rank who is the most likely to start the next Notre Dame game at quarterback, Ian Book, Brendan Clark, or Tyler Buckner? I'm going to say Ian Book. Yeah, uh, I think they're trying to get us to see if there's a chance that the next game is the 2021 season. Uh, that could be Buckner, but – even if even if the season gets moved to the spring, I still think Ian Book would play. I don't think that he's in a position yeah. to not play in the spring, so I would still go with Ian Book. And then if I had to rank the two behind him, I would say Brendan Clark and Tyler Buckner um, in, in that order. Next question is from Tim at Doman Golder, which seems more like a celebration than a question. Is it true that Notre Dame – that a Notre Dame football season will be played in which USC and Michigan don't exist, or am I dreaming? <laughs> Um, you're not dreaming. Um, and 
<laughs> I, I feel for those kids at those programs. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I'm not going to take the Desmond Howard road with this, um, you know, where he was seemed to be delighted that Notre Dame might not be able to put together a schedule before he had done his homework and realized the ACC was going to take them in. Uh, so I, you know, and, and the thing about it is, you know, I'm, I'm not rooting for a particular team or against a particular team, but I realize that fans do that. So let me take myself back to, you know, high school age Eric Hansen that was rooting for Ohio State. I'd want Michigan to be playing, which was Ohio State's rival. I, I always want to be able to play them and to, for them to, I didn't want them to do well, but I wanted them to play. And when they played Ohio State, I didn't want their best players to be injured. I wanted to beat their best players. So I had a different mentality about it. So I, I realize he's, you know, it was just a fun question and I'm taking it too seriously, but that's no, why. I, I do agree with you. I mean, the team I hate the most, if we're allowed to hate college teams is, is Wabash because I went to DePaul. <laughs> um, but I want, I, if, if, if Wabash isn't playing football, I, I or if, if DePaul is playing football, I want Wabash to be playing football. And now yeah. it happens to be that neither of those teams will be playing this year and they won't play for the Monon Bell for the first time in over a century, I think. You have um, to amend your book. <laughs> so, um, it's, uh, I, I've never totally like, that's the thing that always befuddles me with the Notre Dame and Michigan fans hate each other, but then sometimes they don't want to play each other. I was like, well, the rivalry is no fun if you're not playing against each other. I, to me, it loses its, its, its meaning. Now, obviously Michigan and Notre Dame sort of re up that rivalry from time to time, but it's not a, an annual thing like it is with USC, but, um, certainly I think, uh, it would be better for everyone if, if USC and Michigan were playing and Notre Dame could still play the, play those teams. But um, obviously Michigan wasn't on the schedule this season anyways. But next question is from Andy Football Usher. When will Eric Hansen be back on Sportsbeat? Um, you know, I, I certainly could have not taken this question, but I, I think I would be upset if I – ask this question of a coach or whatever, and they wouldn't answer me. So I feel like I need to answer this question. The thing about it is I don't have a great answer. I don't know. Um, you know, a lot of it has to do with the struggles in the radio industry right now. And I guess if I was willing to do it for free, I'd still be on the air, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, my time is worth something. And uh, you know, I, I have no bitterness towards WSBT. I hope that they're able to get their ad revenues up so that everybody can be, you know, have jobs and, and so forth. It's really difficult right now because there's so many businesses that are struggling ad revenue at television stations. My sister works at a TV station in advertising. It's a struggle there. It's a struggle for newspapers right now. So that's my long-winded answer to saying I don't know. Uh, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, we, we, we like the guys. We love the guys at Sportsbeat. We obviously, um, you were on it on a daily basis, and I contribute from time to time. And so um, we, we don't wish them poorly. Certainly, uh, some people could think, well, are you guys sort of like competing against each other? I, I think there's plenty of room for all of us. So I don't know that um, I necessarily measure ourselves against other people when it comes to whether it's a pod, another podcast or another radio show. I think a lot of 
Notre Dame fans listen to multiple of them because there's plenty of room for multiple different opinions. So um, hopefully everything works out for them and they can have a successful season if we can get a successful football season going as well. That's going to help all of us. So uh, we really need a football season to come through to help even the newspaper here um, in South Bend. Next and last question is from Brendan at Very Piratey. Maybe the most important question asked in the COVID era is the SBT taco bar canceled for the 2020 season. For people that don't know, the taco bar is the greatest pitch and supper in the history of <laughs> work pitch and suppers. And it started out very mild and then just kind of grew like a snowball to where there's like seven or eight different kinds of cheeses, for example, three or four different kinds of meat. There's always a cake or two. I don't know how cake became a tradition, but it did with the taco bar. And then people that don't even work in our department. I mean, there's, you know. Family members. Family members. Yeah, family members. It's incredible the turnout for these things. But it's just not going to happen until it's safe to have people serving their own food. Um, and we're not, we're not even working together in an office now. Which yeah, is we're, we're not working together in an office. We kind of have to have special permission to go in. There, Our, our corporate uh, folks, Gannett, do not want us in the office if we don't absolutely have to be there. So, um, And I know when I've had people over here, I haven't you know, been on the grill and serving food. We've always kind of gotten our own individual takeout and then just ate it on my deck just to be safe at this point. So sadly it's not going to happen in 2020. Maybe, maybe we can get someone to sponsor a taco bar and we can just uh, get a, get some takeout from a, a local place to sponsor the SBT taco bar. And then we, we just bring our own food and sit outside and social distance somewhere. And I think it would be smart of us to do it before Carter Carls gets back from Dallas so he can continue his streak of not having yet experienced a taco bar. I think that would be pretty funny. <laughs> there you go. All right, that's it for this week's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Leave us a review or rating if you like what you hear. We'll try to keep a weekly schedule as long as the football season stays alive, so hopefully we're back with you next week. Stick with NDInsider.com for all your preseason Notre Dame football coverage. <laughs>